The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Mari has grown her two fitness and nutrition brands. Co-founder of Bloom Nutrition. Forbes 30 under 30 list. A successful entrepreneur. Someone who has lost 90 pounds. Today's guest is Mari Llewellyn. Mari Llewellyn. My friend Mari. Welcome to The Pursuit of Wellness. Hi guys, welcome back to The Pursuit of Wellness podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a super exciting announcement, something that you guys have been asking for and I've wanted to do for a while. This Sunday, October 8th at 9 a.m., I am hosting a community walk for the Pow and Bloom community. So the podcast community and the Bloom community are coming together. Everyone is welcome. Bring your dogs, bring your kids, bring a friend. The walk will begin at Little Lunch Coffee Shop in Venice. If you look that up, you'll see exactly where it is. Little Lunch Coffee Shop. We've rented a private room for you guys. We'll have goodie bags, free coffee, free matcha. I want to warn you the parking is a bit limited, but there's beach parking down the street and a bit of street parking. But I recommend you guys take an Uber if you can. Come hang out. I will be there. Greg will be there. Fee will be there. Arnold and Lulu will probably be there. Go check out the Pow and Bloom social medias for more details. We cannot wait to see you guys. Now for today's episode, we have an incredible guest, Toby Pierce. He's a tech founder and ex-CEO of the Sweat app, investor, and now an advisor to other founders. He has a super inspiring story. He went from being homeless to selling his company, the Sweat app, for $400 million dollars all before his 29th birthday. And it's very clear to me that Toby has learned a lot from the sale of his company and having financial success at such a young age beyond business. He's full of mindset and motivation advice, which can be applied to your career, fitness journey, or just life in general. He also happens to be the partner of one of my close friends, Rachel Dillon, who is the founder of Crop Shop Boutique. She was also on the show. So make sure you go back and listen to her episode too. It's amazing one. On today's episode, we talk about hitting rock bottom and finding purpose through pain, whether your career and passion need to align, learning from failures, values that change after financial success, becoming a parent, dealing with self-judgment and criticism, why achieving your goals and getting to the top actually makes things harder, why being successful means your circle is smaller learning to sit in stillness and be alone with your thoughts and so much more. I absolutely loved this conversation. I took so much away from it and felt so inspired. And I think you guys will too, regardless of where you are in your journey or career, whether you're an entrepreneur, work for a business or simply trying to find your future purpose, this episode is for you. With that said, welcome Toby to the show. Toby, you are arguably one of the most successful founders and entrepreneurs in the fitness space today. You're also partners with one of my favorite people, Rachel Dillon, who I've interviewed on this show before. She's the founder of Crop Shop Boutique. My husband and I are aware of your story because we've been in the same industry for a few years now. But for anyone who doesn't know, I want to kind of start from the beginning. Sure. I know you had a unique childhood, Mm -hmm. a unique start to life. Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, I grew up in a really small town. I left home during high school in year 12, which in Australia is the final year of high school basically because I wasn't having a good time at good time at home with my parents. Shortly after finishing school, and finishing is a strong word, I just like kind of just survived um, the end of school. Uh, eventually like found my way into personal training, so became a PT in a general sense, you know, had clients working in a gym and, and doing all of that sort of stuff. About, about a year into that, I set up 
my kind of first like real business, you know, outside of PT, which was effectively group fitness boot camps and stuff. Like, and like we're literally talking like, you know, in a park that's like the size of half of a footy oval, you know, sort of scenario with like 15 or 20 women in the morning, you know. I ended up, that was actually quite successful, had a few franchises and that eventually led me to creating some content which I sold online, which then eventually became eBooks and then that eventually became an app and so they all kind of evolved from one thing to the other. Obviously built that business to, you know, we, we sold over $500 million worth of fitness products online, sold it for a couple of hundred million dollars uh, a couple of years ago now and yeah, had a great journey now doing a whole bunch of other stuff, of course, but yeah. Amazing. And why did you leave home at such a young age? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the short version of the story basically is that my family had some trouble, like, navigating some complexity with my sister. And as a result of that, I ended up in quite a lot of, like, very uncomfortable situations, a lot of just general, you know, family tension and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think, like, if I'm if I'm really honest, I probably just wanted to get away from that, you know, as a kid. And so, I, you know, like, I'd been expelled from a school, like had family tension at home, didn't really feel like I, you know, fit in there very much. And so yeah, ended up like, yeah, leaving leaving school before finishing the end of that school year. Spent most of my time living at friends' houses and whatever over the next couple of years and moving around a little bit. But like I, I don't look back on that time and think that's a bad thing. Like, mm. you know, sure it's not like I would say maybe it's not the most conventional path, but I think a lot of these things are no different to a lot of other opportunities we have in life actually present the best opportunities for kind of growth here and that for me during that period of time and at that point in time wasn't fun Mm. but I look back on it now and think yeah I got a lot of value from that so I feel like everyone I sit down with who has had some level of success has had some tumultuous past something hard something hard everyone I and I always say I think hitting rock bottom is actually kind of a blessing because you just have such a different perspective and a place to work yourself up from how much do you think that time of your life has impacted who you are now as a person, as an entrepreneur? Huge. Yeah, yeah, huge. I think like there's this really interesting idea of like fragility, right? So a lot of people think either they are fragile or their their business is fragile, their job is fragile, their relationship is fragile. And so as a result of that, they don't want to, you know, often they'll avoid facing into certain discomfort, which is otherwise necessary or useful to kind of get where they want to go and it's different for everybody but when you hit your kind of version of like rock bottom you whatever that might be you come out of like a long-term relationship and that's hard or you lose a job or you leave home or whatever it might be inevitably life kind of goes on mm-hmm. you know and then when you get to the whenever this point is you know but after you've kind of come to the conclusion that well life is still here and I'm actually okay and you're kind of surviving and all this sort of stuff it it, it helps you realize that you're not fragile and I think the idea of you not being fragile also then kind of you know, implicitly teaches you that, well, I can, you yeah. know, I can do this or I can do that. I think for people that have experienced you know, adversity and hardship in their life, it very often creates a strong, you know, like kind of motivation or, you know, like motivating driver to try and do other things. And you know, it's very commonly like this idea of like, well, they said I can't do it, so I will, or I'm worried about not having this, so I'll work really hard to get it, you know, and whether or not those motivations are like useful long term is is another thing but in the short term i think for a lot of people and as you mentioned like a lot of people that are successful or at whatever it is that they do they normally come from that position mm-hmm. yeah and they use that i guess that pain or adversity as a driver to achieve more yeah and i i feel like when you have nothing to lose mm. it's like you might as well just try yeah yep yeah, i absolutely agree and i think you know part of the part of the art of you know, in this, in this context, you with business, like part of the art of getting really good at that is being like, well, 
if you get to the point where you are confident enough in your own skills to fix problems, you will take ideally more and more calculated risks, which will present more opportunity to you. Mm-hmm. you know, it's the individual who wants to perfect something before doing it or wants to intellectualise it rather than try it that ends up in this kind of circular loop where unfortunately they're not actually able to make the progress that they want because they're too afraid to yeah, take the risk. I pulled a quote from your Twitter. I actually <laughs> pulled a few of your quotes because oh. I love them that I want to <laughs> talk through. You said, if you do what everyone else does, you will get what everyone else gets. Mm-hmm. If you want a different and improved life, you will have to do different things. Different pays off, whether that be literal in a financial sense or in happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, and especially if you follow the rhetoric of society, right? You know, that is that like, woe is me, this is bad, I can't do that, et cetera, et cetera. That story will drive certain behavior in you and then you will do what everything, all the things that everybody else does. But if you want to achieve exceptional things, you have to do different stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where did your interest in fitness begin on a personal level? Yeah. So I, I definitely played sport a lot growing up. You I give was, me rugby vibes. No, well, see, this is the, this is the funny <laughs> thing, right? So until... The end of high school, I weighed, uh, let me do this in pounds, I weighed about 115 pounds. Oh, so you were small. So I was like your, you know, most people will be able to kind of picture your like in the music room at lunchtime playing the piano quite like sort of skinny nerd. That was was me. So I still played sport. I definitely didn't realise I was as slim as I was because, <laughs> like, in my mind, I was I thought I was okay. I played football, like Aussie rules football, definitely not rugby. But when I, like, got towards the end of my school time, I was playing football, I hurt my back. Like, I got a knee to the back, you know, playing a match and went to a physio and basically they were like, well, like, maybe you should build some muscle in your back so that you're not so frail. <laughs> That's a good um, suggestion, honestly. Yeah. So you went to the gym to do some exercises and I happened to go to this gym, which was convenient for where I was living at the time. A guy that yeah worked there, who's a great friend of mine now, Ben Wortley, was a yeah, like kind of bodybuilder. And of course there's me. I was like 17 years old. It's like, oh my God, like who is this dude? He's jacked. You know, he's like a personal trainer. He's making like whatever it was, I don't know, 90 bucks an hour at this time. And I was making like $16 an hour. And I was like, so you can like build muscles and like feel good and like make money. I'm like, that was like the trifecta, you know, for me at that point in my life, pretty simplistic. And so, yeah, like literally that was like a light switch for me. Yeah. Pretty much immediately started training in the gym, like five or six days a week. A couple of months later, I went to do my personal training course and then, you know, kind of off I went. Why do you think you began with training women specifically? So when I initially started working in a gym as a trainer, I actually like trained both men and women. Okay. It, it ended up it was kind of by chance in the sense that I was doing a full-time double degree in, in, in law and commerce when I was a trainer. And what that meant was that I would try to do like, you know, training in the morning from sort of 5 or 6 a.m. through until about 10 or 11 a.m. Then I would go to university, do, you know, classes or whatever for a few hours and some study, come back, train, and then I would do clients again from like 5 p.m. until 10 p.m., go home, do it again and, you know, roll over. And it just so happened that that time in the morning really suited this particular group of mums, you know, that were at the gym. So they would come in, we had a crash in the gym, they would drop their kids off, they would train normally with me, have a coffee, rah, 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 and there's a group of about 10 or 15 of them. And then eventually over time I realised they would then tell their friends, so then their friends came along and I basically ended up being the guy that was just training this massive group of, you know, mums who would drop their kids off in the morning. And then it became hard to fit them all in, so I put them in groups 
And then that kind of like, so it was quite a natural evolution. Like that was just kind of the way that it, you know, that it ended up happening. And then, yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really great fun and getting lots of results. And I think also as well, like it's important to contextualize. So if you were to see a woman walk into a gym now and go and start lifting weights, that's kind of normal now. If you go, you know, this is like nearly 10 years ago, that was quite strange. I didn't know it was strange. So I would always just take my clients in and start training in there. And it didn't occur to me until I've been working there for a while that that wasn't like a like normal, you know, mm-hmm. at that particular point in time. So yeah, they re- they really loved that. Obviously, you know, got great results and all that. And it was it was a very kind of self-fulfilling, you know, journey early on. I also feel like women are, I mean, a, a better customer in a way, because <laughs> I, I think it's harder to sell to men. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, it, it can be. And I think like, at least in my experience, you know, at a trainer at that particular point in time, uh, some men certainly get the attitude that once they've kind of like learned how to do X, Y, and Z, they're like, okay, cool, I can do this now. Mm-hmm. And, and if they can, fair enough. You know, like I, I actually used to say to people all the time, I'm like, if after training with me for sort of three, six, nine months, you don't need me anymore, good, I'm like, because then you've learned like what to do. Mm-hmm. But knowing what to do and being coached are two quite different things, you know, like the accountability piece, the motivation, the support, emotional and all that sort of stuff is quite a lot to it. But for whatever reason, yeah, lots of men didn't necessarily need all that. So. I think most people listening have heard of BBG or the mm-hmm. Sweat app or they've mm-hmm. done it. A lot of people have mentioned to me that they've done it. It really led the way for influencer fitness apps. I remember when I yeah. first started, you guys were a huge inspiration for me. Now I have my yeah. own app. I feel like all the fitness influencers yeah. have their own app now. Yeah. Where was the initial idea for the app? Where did it come from? Yeah, so it was a, it was actually a combination of things that all sort of came together at the same time. Um, so we'd been selling ebooks, you know, for some time, and we f- like found a torrent site online. So we'd we'd come over to the states, and everywhere we went, like every college that you know, I'd do speaking events at you know colleges. Uh, we'd do media, we'd run events here, you know, all of that, and like there was just thousands, like tens of thousands of women of all ages. Being like, yeah, we we use the guides, right? I think Fee actually attended one of your events, didn't did, you? Did you? Was, yeah. That's yeah, that's so right. crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was like four thousand people there that day. I remember that one. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, we we would uh, find people who would come to those events like Fee, uh, and yeah, they'd say a little had all you know they had our ebooks and this that and the other, and then over time I started kind of like running numbers in my head, and I was like, there's a lot of people coming to these things, but don't think we've sold that many things in this area like so what am i you know kind of missing started researching on the internet and found a torrent website and there was this was one website one torrent from one individual had been downloaded six million times sorry does that mean that they people were illegally downloaded? yeah they were sharing they okay were yeah sharing. this happened to us too yeah yeah so this is so we're like i saw that and like you know part of me was like oh that's a great marketing strategy and then the other part of me was like well, that's a little bit sad. Yeah, that's a little bit sad. Uh, you know, put a lot of work into that. Probably feel like it would be nice to to be rewarded for that. So that was one problem. Another problem was that, you know, in a PDF, you know, you only really have like images, right? And so like we would take like 2,000 images to like create stage-by-stage GIFs almost like on paper, you know, this, which is like not the best user experience. Then around this time, I also started to kind of have this idea. You know, I'd come to America a few times and I had my first kind of introduction to like the world of, venture capital and private equity. And I was like, oh my God, you can like build tech companies and sell them and it would be super cool. I knew nothing about it other than that. So I was like, oh, well, we should like do software and build a tech company. And I I went through my own very simplistic process of like, well, why would that not work? And, you know, one of the reasons was obviously we only had, you know, 
one you know talent at this particular time we brought some other talent in other trainers later on to join on but we're like how do we how do we have lots of trainers with videos that's tech you know and all this sort of stuff like how do we bring all that together and long story short it ended up being a you know mobile app and this is like before subscription was really prominent and there wasn't really i don't even i think it was like only like a few apps online and even the ones that did exist they were web apps they weren't mobile apps this was like you know instagram i think would have probably yeah not even had videos yet so this is like super like we're talking like super super early on yeah so like now that's like kind of like to your point it's like quite normal now Mm -hmm. but at that particular point in time you know nearly 10 years ago that was pretty uh it was like pretty like revolutionary you know and cool (laughs) but yeah so it was not necessarily one thing it was kind of the culmination of a few things yeah do you feel like personal passion and your profession have to be intertwined in order to be successful short answer absolutely not hmm. yeah and so uh, which is like very different to what a lot of people yeah, would say I love they're that. like tell us more yeah so like a lot of people say you need to be passionate about what you do etc 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 and I, and I, like i can understand that but like for me do i do i like fitness yes you know did i really enjoy the idea that we were able to like positively contribute to people's lives in a very unique and special way yes absolutely but I, I like honestly, there was not many days where I woke up and I was like, "Yeah, go on to work, so do fitness stuff." That wasn't really it for me. My joy was building, like it was building a business. That that was my passion. So I'm a little different in that regard. That I'm not passionate about like a product or a service or an industry. I just love the game, mm. like truly in love with the game. So I was very fortunate that I was in a particular game at that point in time that was very complicated and challenging. I got to learn a lot. But I think like when you look at other individuals, I think like being passionate can be so using that as a mindset to make a decision about what to engage in can be quite you know self-deprecating or like quite limiting you know in the sense it's like let's just make it the extreme version of the mindset i won't do anything unless i am passionate about it say okay but 99 percent of the world don't even know what they're bloody passionate about Mm -hmm. so to figure out what you're passionate about or what you even enjoy like let's substitute the word passion for enjoy it's like well you got to try shit and so if you have this mindset of like, I will only do things that I'm passionate about, well, you probably never actually figure much out. Yeah. And so like, I think, yes, in being able to enjoy what you do is absolutely important for sure. But being like thoroughly obsessed with it is not necessary, I don't think. Do you yeah. think that applies to the CEO role? Because I'm thinking mm. of it in terms of Greg and I, as CEO, like mm-hmm. you, he's obsessed with business. He's yeah. obsessed with playing the game. He yeah. could do that all day long. I'm genuinely obsessed with nutrition and health and hence me starting this podcast and talking about it all day what do you think of that like do you think the face of the brand should be obsessed with the mission or i think so let maybe we separate this into three areas one is like you know kind of the running of the organization another is you know the product you know uh, and then another is you know the marketing or brand right so i think if you're going to have an individual that is associated with a product or service who promotes it i think if there is not an authentic link between their interests you know, and the particular product or whatever, then I think that you're probably not setting yourself up for success, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that I think that, you know, people are not stupid. They will see that it's just kind of like pay to promote sort of scenario. It feels very inauthentic and people won't be able to, they won't gravitate towards that because they can't relate, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of the reason why, you know, influencer marketing or, you know, um, talent or individual-based marketing works is because people can relate to the individual they're not necessarily relating to the product they're relating to the individual right on the opposite end of the spectrum if you're the kind of ceo or a business person or whatever like you're there to generate results 
Like, so your interest and key focus area has to be results, right? For the person who's designing the product, which in many cases, so like founders are normally marketing or product-led. That's normally how, how organizations start, not always, but very commonly. You do kind of have to be obsessed with quality product, right? Like, so it's not even that, oh, like maybe you're, you are or aren't a nutrition scientist, right? But, it's like, but you want the best. You have to want the best and build something great. And this is like where there can very often be a divergence of paths, a divergence of paths for these people. Like a business person who's a CEO, whatever, might just be like, I just want to make money. Yeah, and you see this all the time with corporate executives where they lose touch with the customers and the audience and the product or whatever and just becomes, you know, kind of dotting I's and crossing T's. You know, whereas a passionate product person will very often do things that are like unscalable and in some cases irrational to get the best product, but that can very often generate great business results. Mm-hmm. So like, I think like a lot of things, well, a lot of people want to simplify these things into like, oh, do, the, do X to get Y. But these are like running an organization is multifactorial. Like there's a lot of things go into it. It's very complicated and it requires a lot of things to go right collectively at the same time to win, which requires different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you are a co-founder, but also you were the CEO, which is yep. pretty rare. Yep. Greg is also that position. Yep. And I think a lot of people glamorize that role, but also just being an entrepreneur in general. And on a personal level, I know it's very taxing and a level yeah. of responsibility. I mean, how old are you? 31? Yeah. yeah. I'm 29. And it's yeah. I never imagined the level of pressure I would feel just to mm. be responsible for all the people out there. It's huge. Can you talk to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a quite significant personal like disdain for what you're talking about there where people are like, oh, you're like, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I'm a CEO, like, you know, rah, rah, doing this. It's like, okay, cool. But like a lot of people put that they hold or place more value in the title than they do the act, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because they think that it, it makes them cool. It's sort of like... Uh, people that believe that you know wearing really expensive branded stuff makes them a better person it might make you look nicer but it doesn't actually change the quality of your character right and so like i think when you've been in business for a long time you can normally kind of spot people early on like in your interactions with them based on the way they kind of introduce themselves or this that or the other and you can kind of go oh, okay cool like so it's it's more important for you to look good than to be good you know if that makes sense i think like in in my experience like it's the journey is infinitely harder then people can understand, number one. And number two, the more successful you are, typically it's it's harder again, right? <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of people will kind of justify like, oh, it's hard running a small business and kind of going from zero to one and getting started and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it is, it's, it's, it's bloody stressful. It's right, cool. And then try to do that when you grow 300% a year. Yeah, and try to do that when you're in your 20s and you probably have your know, limited you know business experience. What the hell is people management? Oh shit! What's a P and L? How do I read these financial statements? Oh shit! How do I keep employees happy? Oh my god! An office? Where do you find an office? Like there are so many unanswered questions, right? The learning curve is truly vertical, and unfortunately, the more successful you are early on, the harder that is because you have more decisions to make in a compressed time frame. Did you know you can tell the difference between a laboratory-grown diamond and a natural diamond? Laboratory-grown diamonds are mass-produced in factories in just a few weeks and are easily detected due to their distinct patterns. 
On the other hand, natural diamonds are over a billion years old and support the livelihood of over 10 million people worldwide. The positive impact of natural diamonds is widespread. Around 80% of the value of every rough diamond remains in the local communities and supports infrastructure, healthcare, education, and environmental protection. So next time you're thinking of celebrating a special moment in your life, remember that your natural diamond also protects vulnerable wildlife species and brings prosperity to many less fortunate communities around the world. For more information, visit naturaldiamonds.com. In my household, we do a lot of laundry. My husband and I both work out a ton. I horseback ride. Basically, we sweat a lot and our clothes smell bad frequently. And I always thought that it was crazy to be using these giant plastic jugs of laundry detergent that isn't usually good for the environment. And that's where I found EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze makes revolutionary liquidless laundry detergent that looks like a dryer sheet, but isn't. It gets your clothes clean. They make life so much easier. It dissolves in any wash cycle, hot or cold. There's no measuring, no gooey mess and no heavy plastic jug. You just toss the sheet in. Plus it's delivered right to your door via carbon offset shipping at a frequency you set for your own laundry lifestyle. I've recently done an overhaul of so many different products in my house. I'm trying to clean everything up, make sure it's good for the environment, but also good for me and my body. Their eco sheets are hypoallergenic and dermatologist tested, which is perfect for me and my sensitive skin. Most importantly, you still get a powerful clean. Earth Breeze is tough on stains, fights odors and gives you a clean you can feel good about. Right now, my listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash pow. That's earthbreeze.com slash pow for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash pow. Most of you know I am absolutely obsessed with my two dogs, Lulu, who's eight years old, and Arnold, who is a new puppy. He's three months. And I've always been really, really conscious of what I'm feeding my dogs. I want them to be as healthy as I am and live the healthiest, longest life possible. And that's where I found the farmer's dog. And the result of switching your dog's food from kibble to fresh can seem like magic. You'll notice a boost in their energy. Their coats are shinier. There's no secret. All it is is fresh food and science. The farmer's dog isn't just fresher, higher quality food. They also send food pre-portioned specifically for your dog based on their unique nutritional needs. And that helps them maintain their ideal weight, which is one of the biggest indicators of a full and healthy life. Dogs at a healthy weight can live up to 2.5 years longer than overweight dogs. Both of my dogs absolutely love their farmer's dog. We love the beef, the pork, the turkey. You can actually see the ingredients and I feel really good giving it to them every single day. I've noticed a healthier coat and skin, better breath, better digestion, better poops. Healthy diets aren't just for humans, they are for dogs as well. Get 50% off your first box of fresh healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash wellness plus you get free shipping. Get 50% off your first box of fresh healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash wellness Plus, you get free shipping. Just go to thefarmersdog.com slash wellness. Go to thefarmersdog.com slash wellness to get 50% off your first box plus free shipping. What do you feel like took you through your hardest moments mentally? Uh, So maybe divide them into two things, right? So the generic like, stuff's happening really quickly this is really hard trying to keep up rah 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 honestly like i actually thrived in that (laughs) like i I loved that 
mostly because it was winning constantly, right? Yeah, you know, it's like when I could see results coming in, that was a little bit like fuel to the fire. I mean, I didn't find that hard. I actually found it thoroughly, you know, enjoyable. It was more when things like didn't go right, you know, like so there's there's the inevitable like up, 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 down temporarily, up, 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 down. You know, those those were the points that were really hard for me. Like one of the greatest examples. So, you know, we go through this like deal process to try to sell the company for the first time. We effectively do the deal, like it's on paper, it's signed, you know, everything. And then 36 hours before the money is like meant to come through, the buyer pulls out. And so that would be hard generically, right? But it, it's harder when you've spoken to the media about it. You've told your whole company, you've recruited 30 or 40 new people because you're like getting ready to, you know, go through that like kind of next growth phase. Now, full transparency, they're all flaws of mine at that time. They were bad choices by me you know, in my particular role at that time. And that became very clear very quickly after, you know, when the deal fell through. But like those particular times, like what the hell when life prepares you for that? To walk into a room and say, hi guys, well, look, what I said was done miraculously has now been undone. I'm really sorry. And we're going to have to downsize the company by like 30% of you. Not sure who or when or how. Yeah. And like, so these, like, there's not much in life that can prepare you for that. And, you know, at that particular point in time, I was 25, 26, I think, years old. So it's hard stuff. It's, uh, as you said, something that you can never be prepared for, but also something you can't talk to anyone about. I mean, first of all, well, you it's unrelatable. It's unrelatable. Yeah. No one really gets it except maybe your partner or your business partner. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also not something you want to go around kind of like airing out either. No, no, because it's like, and again, like you don't want to be negative all the time because yeah. a lot of the world would go like, oh, well, I would kill to be in your position. It's like, yeah, sure, until you knew what it was like. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's really hard. Yeah, and like, and Rachel and I talk about this, you know, all the time. Like, you know, we're sitting there being like, oh, you know, like love my job, love the work, this, that and the other. But like, but sometimes it is, it's a real pain. You know, like, a real pain because it follows you everywhere. It's 24-7. Yeah, and like, and this is the thing because you care about it like it's, a child, yeah, like it's a full love, right? Mm -hmm. you know, even though it's very upsetting all of the time, like yeah, it's it's a full love. Like I, I always say to people, I'm like, you'll always have a disproportionate negative emotional response to this sort of stuff, and like this is part of the emotional complexity, at least for me and for other people that I've you know met over my journey, is that when you have success, oh, it's all good, yeah, cool, high five, hurrah. But the high is not really, it's not actually that high. But then when something goes wrong, the low is like low, like it's like super, super low. And uh, like dealing with that where it's like neutral, a little high, massive low, neutral, a little high, massive low. Like that's very hard. And to your point, if people can't relate to that, it's hard to kind of vent. How do you problem solve that? And I mean, even for us, like early on in our journey, I mean, we, because at the time you know, I was you know, living in South Australia in a city called Adelaide, which is, you know, there's a million people or whatever live there. It's not a very big place. It's like you know, you talk to five accounting firms and none of them do accounting for a subscription business. So they can't help you with that, right? You talk to all the marketing agencies, none of them do marketing for mobile apps. Right? So you so make it yourself. So there's yeah, literally like no one, like no one there had done anything. So I would actually come to America all the time just to chat to people, to mm. try to like learn from them because there was just no one around. So it's like when things go bad, that's hard. You're learning, you know, in, in, my, in my case and yours, you know, quite young, not necessarily surrounded by people who can relate to that and can't really even find the people to help, right? Like, so it's a real, like in many regards, it's quite, it's a dystopian, you know, kind of scenario to be in. But like for me, because I love the game, it was, it was good fun. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like looking at the industry now, there's almost like a roadmap, not, yeah. not 
fully thought out, but I feel like when people get followers now, they have an agent. The agent yep. tells them what to do. They have oh, the it's, app agency. It's sophisticated. I, I always say that we're in the Wild West. Yeah. Like, we're literally in the Wild, Wild West. Like, we, you know, like, even, you know, like, over, just over the last, like, six, seven, eight years, right, like, what's happened? It's like, well, the cost of building an app has gone down by, like, 90% on a relative basis. The speed of doing that is much higher because the technology is better. There is almost a default plugin for, like, every possible thing that you could, you know, ever, you know, want to do. Like, it's all there, right? Mm -hmm. We had to build all of that from scratch, right? And the same concept applies to other industries too. I mean, even just social media as an example, like Instagram was successful quicker than Facebook because a large part of the roadmap was there from who? Facebook. Facebook wasn't the first either, obviously. But then TikTok comes along and what do they do? They really just roll out the same playbook but with a few differences. And I'm not trying to downplay the success of the platform, but like a large part of it's there, like, oh, machine learning and, you know, like content distribution algorithms, like the way that they build out, you know, the advertising betting models, all of this sort of stuff. That wasn't there when Facebook started. So, like, you know, many, many, many years later in any given industry, yeah, the playbooks are there. It's much easier to enter. However, normally, not in all cases, but the results are also less. Yeah. Right, because it's almost commoditized in some regard. And what I love about the time that we started, you were way before us, but mm. I remember going through every single design frame. You know, when you're going mm. through each step of the uh, app, yeah, yeah, what yeah. happens if I click user this interface, button? Yeah. What's the user experience yeah. if I do? So I had that experience. Yep. So I've personally been super involved in everything we've ever yeah. done and yeah. i feel like i've learned so much more than if someone just handed me yeah, a exactly. pre-done app and said pick your colors absolutely yeah and that's like part of where the skills are built you know like yeah. coming back to that you know comment before about being passionate it's like you might not need to be passionate about like fitness in this case but maybe if you like building stuff mm. and then you get really interested in like how the apps work and this that and the other like you can still have fun there i'm good on yeah. that to be yeah. honest <laughs> It was yeah. honestly a pretty tedious process for it, me. It is. It's very tedious. Yeah. I have another quote of yours. Love this one. Unpopular opinion. Mm -hmm. More often than not, intelligence contributes less to success than timing, mm -hmm. luck and persistence. People just like the idea and feeling that their superior intellect was why they won in mm -hmm. business, career, sport or other activity. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, so I think like a lot of the time... Yeah, so coming back to the status thing before, you know, I'm the CEO, I'm the entrepreneur, I'm super smart, I work 120 hours a week, you know, this flight, that flight, travel, rah, 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 rah. Like they're all effectively virtue, you know, signaling things, right, to say I'm successful because I'm special, right? And, you know, reality is that most people that are successful have worked hard and most people that are successful have put in the time to, to do certain things. But, like, you know, just, just as an aside, like if – there was a direct relationship between intelligence or let's use IQ as a, it's a crappy measure, but let's use that, you know, and like financial success. It's like, well, then all the really wealthy people in the world would be the really, really, really smart ones. Sure, some of them are really smart, but they're not actually just successful because they were smart. They were successful because they took risks. They were successful because they persisted for a really long time, you know, and they were successful because the idea that they had and the skills that they had appropriately suited that time, right? Like, so like timing... And I use the word like kind of luck being like the combination of your you know, attributes and the timing and the space that you were in all coming together at the same time. That's kind of the luck component. Like, you know, you can't pretend that doesn't exist, right? Like I was lucky that I was a PT who then ended up training women who then kind of understood the content they want, who then ended up kind of figuring out how social media worked and then kind of understood apps and that all kind of came together. You know, that wasn't like, 
I'm not some genius who, you know, kind of came up with it all. Sure, I worked hard, yes. You know, sure, I persisted in this, that and the other. But, like, really it's, you know, the timing of that and the continuation of effort is more responsible for the success than me being especially clever. Mm-hmm. Like, And that's a really harsh reality for some people. They really don't like that idea. You know, they like the idea that I discovered something that you didn't. And if you look at all of the marketing, not all, a lot of the marketing for – Business education, it's like, oh, well, I've built this special sales framework that'll help you get this, you know, like, or I've discovered this way that you can do Facebook ads that no one else has figured out, or I can beat the social media algorithm. That's all the pictures, and they're all effectively intelligence-like signals. I am smarter than everybody else. That's why I can win. But it's always people that have actually never started a business. Oh, look, if you're a business coach, uh, this... this, (laughs) Go off. Say whatever you want. Like, if if you... like seeking help in the realm of business and you you know, employ, for lack of a better word, a business coach who does not have like publicly available objective data to substantiate that they can actually do what it is that you are seeking from them, then they need a coach, right? Like it's the other way around, right? Like, and you see this all the time. They're like, oh yeah, I've coached 200 CEOs and rah, rah, rah. It's like, okay, cool. Like, but how many of them were successful? And how many made more money? And how much of that success was actually attributed to your coaching? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's a it, it really grinds my gears. Like, it really grinds my gears. It's pretty funny seeing those ads. I have to say. Yeah. Back to the persistence comment. I think that's so valid, and we mm. even talk about it with the show. I think yeah. with podcasts, most people give up by episode what? I think it's yeah. episode five or something because yeah. it is so much work. Simply by putting out a podcast every week for yep. a year, you're already beating 90% of people. Yeah, because you're doing the things that other people won't, which is why you'll get the results that they won't get. Mm-hmm. Right? Back to that <laughs> like, quote. Yeah, this is, the, this is the same thing. Like a lot of the time, like don't get me wrong, you can't just continuously apply effort, change no approach and expect to win, right? But the reason why continuation of effort normally does work is because the continuation of effort normally results in the continuation of intelligently applied effort, i.e. you learn over time and you improve things. So time in the game is really time learning. Yeah. Right? And like I always, like when working with you know business owners, I always try to bring them back to this like basic principle that it's like decision-making is a skill, right? And if you want to win in any endeavor, but in this particular case, business, well, you will win by making better decisions than other people. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make better decisions, then you need practice, right? So it's like, yeah, if you do five podcasts, that's not enough practice, yeah. right? There's a reason why corporate executives who've been in the game for 30 years get paid more and get better job opportunities than people who've been doing it for three. Or they can make better decisions. They yeah. make better judgment calls, typically, not always, right? So like this notion of like being in the game for a long time and like, you know, intelligently applied effort over the long term is ultimately what, you know, drives results. Yeah. And for anyone listening, this can be applied to anything. Like if you have a side hustle or you're starting something new, a project, if you want to have an Etsy store. And literally anything, even if it's about like a workout program, if you want to get better results in the gym, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's not just raw time in the gym. Like I mean, I use the example all the time. I'm quite into jujitsu and I always use that example. I'm like, Yes, like mat time or like being in the gym and, and you know, sparring and training, well, that matters, yes, for sure. But if you're just going in there kind of blindly doing nothing and then leaving and then coming back the next day and doing the same thing blindly again, it's like, well, that's just effort applied. It's not intelligently applied effort over time. Mm-hmm. You know, you, like you have to be willing to fail and learn, you know, assess what's happened, try to like gain insights, implement new things, test and experiment, like... 
and also yeah. not throw in the towel when it doesn't go your way one day. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, martial arts is great for that because you're going to get beat up most of the time. <laughs> I always get asked about how I stay healthy while traveling and it really is a challenge but I feel like I've gotten into a groove where it isn't as hard for me anymore. I just find ways of incorporating walking, drinking enough water, eating well and this is where we found Westin Hotels. We've actually used them for the team. We traveled to Coachella this past year and the whole team stayed in the Westin Hotels and with over 200 destinations around the world, Western hotels make it possible for you to keep up with your wellness routine while traveling. You can work out the way you want with a variety of fitness options to keep your wellness routine on track while you're away. You can maintain focus in Western workout fitness studios equipped with state-of-the-art equipment. I know hotel gyms aren't always the best, but I can say from experience, these are amazing and you can really replicate the same workouts you're doing at home. You can eat well with Weston's Eat Well menu designed with foods that make sure you're meeting your nutritional needs. Weston chefs have crafted dishes with your well-being in mind. You can choose what's right for you and your desired portion size and nutritional balance. And most importantly, in my opinion, you can sleep well and recharge your body and mind with restorative sleep in Weston's renowned heavenly bed. I think sleep absolutely affects everything else and making sure we're sleeping well while traveling is super important as well. At Western Hotels, there's amenities and offerings aimed to help you move well, eat well, and sleep well, so you can keep your well-being close while away. Find wellness on your next day at Western. Hair loss affects over 80 million Americans. It's so common that by 35, two-thirds of men will experience some form of hair loss. And it's not just men. 40% of Americans who experience hair loss are women. I know Greg has struggled with this and I have too after I had COVID and that's where we found Divi. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress, postpartum, menopause or any medical related conditions, a scalp with a lot of product or oil buildup, anyone that has a dry scalp, anyone who wears tight hairstyles or extensions or anyone who's just looking to start a healthy scalp routine. When lifestyle blogger Danny Austin went through an emotional hair loss journey, she took it upon herself to research and learn about the importance of routines behind scalp health. Through this exploration, it led to the creation of Divi's first product, a scalp serum that improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes hair follicles and removes product and oil buildup. Some of the key ingredients are copper tripeptide, caffeine, tea tree oil, amino acids, and hyaluronic acid. Divi isn't just for those experiencing hair loss. It can be used by men and women of all ages who want to continue their scalp care journey. Their mission is to promote your healthiest scalp and happiest hair with ingredients that are clean, effective, and backed by science. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health? Do it with clean, science-backed ingredients. We have a special offer for the Pursuit of Wellness audience. Go to divyofficial.com slash pow or enter pow at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's use divyofficial.com slash pow, P-O-W, for 20% off your first order. So obviously you had a very successful exit with Sweat, yep. a $400 million exit at age 29. Uh, well, I think it was two weeks before my 29th birthday. But no yeah. way. Okay, yeah, so you were still in your 20s, which is yeah. considerably young. What was it like to have that level of financial success at that age? 
Yeah, so uh, yeah, go, going back to my very early 20s, so I, like I, oh, sorry, even before that, so I left home, you know, and I was working like two or three jobs, you know, kind of after high school, you know, making like $30,000 a year, $40,000 a year, and that was like a lot at that point. Like for me, it was a lot. You know, to starting PT, you know, did about 150K in my first year, you know, and then three years after that, I did about 10 million, right? So the the curve of like fun or like, you know, the financial, you know, or like wealth generation or income generation was like quite, you know, aggressive early on. So I think like by the time I got to like actually selling the organization, you obviously got, got some money as a part of that. I think it was two things happened at the same time. Like one was, okay, well, now kind of hit a point where that's never ever going to be a problem in my life unless I've made a whole bunch of really bad decisions, right? So presumably there's a decent degree of safety there. But then like outside of the money, uh, what ended up happening, which you know, I probably naively didn't really consider enough was that I had a massive identity crisis, you know, like almost immediately after doing the deal. Because I'd worked very diligently in the background to set the organization up so that it would effectively run itself. So like by the time we sold the company, you know, with a kind of grain of salt, I would really do about five significant meetings per month and that would, that would pretty much run the company. Yes, I did other stuff in between, of course, but it was really five primary meetings per month that ran the company. So when we sold the company, a few months later, my COO took my position and I was kind of out. And so like this, after that, it's like, okay, well, you're no longer the founder guy. You're no longer the CEO guy. You don't really have a job or a place to go. You don't really like see a lot of the people that you love working with, you know, this, that and the other. It's like, well, who the hell are you? So like it all goes, you know, kind of just like, you know, disappears overnight. And I think for me, that was actually, it was a really valuable experience because it it definitely helped me realize that although I loved the game I had my own you know kind of like blinders on in some regards so those remarks before about like people take a lot of status in the CEO title this that the other that wasn't I didn't necessarily have that that wasn't it for me but I definitely kind of unconsciously took status and being like but I like have a business this is me I'm hustling the business is me you know so there was no in my mind there was no fundamental differentiation between the company and me. The identity was like quite shared. Yeah. And it wasn't until after having gone through that process, I was like, oh, okay, that was a very risky position to be in. Yeah, and that was probably a very unwise, uh, you know, like approach on my part. And obviously, you know, this is part of the development journey, you know, as, as we get older and hopefully wiser. So like that was like the money part was actually a much smaller component of it for me than necessarily like the identity piece. Yeah, yeah that was actually something I was going to ask you about because – I've had a lot of entrepreneurs tell me mm-hmm. and Greg yeah. that is the hardest thing to experience Very because hard. your business becomes who you are, especially yep. when it's bootstrapped. Yep. You were involved from the beginning. It's your child. It's everything yep. that you know. I mean, Bloom is like the only real job I've had other yeah. than working the front desk at a gym making minimum wage. So yep. I don't really know anything else. Mm. Yep. How do you even begin to rebuild your identity after that? Because it's not like you necessarily needed mm. to go work more yeah well it's like who the hell are you right well this this is a question i ask myself like so like i and i remember it was like quite an interesting thing like shortly after i had moved house and i didn't have any furniture in the house i had a like literally an inflatable mattress and this was i was like working out my last couple of months of you know kind of handover and so i you know kind of finished up on the friday yeah, and I went to like give this speech to the company saying thank you for you know your support and, and all this stuff over you know the many previous years. Anyway, and I, I like 
like I'm not typically a very emotional guy, like in this regard. But like I, I was like like sobbing, like I couldn't even get words out. Like you know, it was I felt very embarrassed at the time almost because like I'd spent seven years or whatever working with all of these people and like never once having given like any emotion at all. You know, to being like completely just like yeah, could not control you know the emotion. Anyway, finish that call, kind of hang up, and that that's it. My job there is done. So I go away for the weekend, I get home, and then I wake up on my inflatable mattress you know, on the Monday morning, and I'm like... So you just made $400 million yeah. and you woke up on an inflatable mattress? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't attach much to things. Uh, you, you probably come to know that over time, but like... This is so funny. So, so I, anyway, I wake up and I'm like, oh, well, I'll go to my favourite cafe, so I go and have breakfast, and I was like... But I would normally, my routine would be like, I'd go to the cafe and get coffee, go to work, and I was like, well, I'm not going to go to work, and I was like... So I go home. I was going to read for a bit, and I'm like, "This is actually this is this is quite hard. This is got nothing to do, you know." I'm like, "Fuck!" And I'm pretty lonely, actually, you know, like kind of sitting here, and I'm like, "Oh, what do I do?" You know, and so like you go through this massive, and for me, it was probably like a three to six month process. It was quite hard, actually. Like, and my coach, you know, my, my psychologist, I've worked with for sort of six or seven years. He said to me, "He's like, Toby, this presents you an an incredible opportunity to get really good at being bored." Mm. And like, I didn't properly understand you know, like what that meant, you know, like at the time, but it was excruciatingly painful for me. But yeah, like literally it was months of like, you know, kind of like meditating and, you know, journaling and talking to people and trying to figure out like what actually, you know, mattered to me. Like, cause when you're in a journey like that, and I mean, you're in yours right now, like it is, it is in many regards kind of a bubble, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're in that bubble for a little while and it's hard to get out of the bubble to like kind of zoom out and get like perspective and figure out like, who are you? kind of agnostic of the you know the bubble that you're in and so for me like I sat there for many months being like well what do I actually even like doing yeah because I would just work like because I, I like the game I was like well I, I definitely love business and I want to be in business but I don't want to rush into something because I want it to be you know good to do but I was like well what do I do in the interim and I was like oh well you yeah, so like one this was one of the things that led me to the position that I'm in now which is sort of doing consulting and advisory with you know with founders is because I was like well I love the game you know and I love learning, which, you know, game is learning to me. But then I'm like, I really like the idea of helping other people achieve similar success that I had, but without them having to go through all the pain that I went through. Mm. Yeah. And so for me like that, I, mean, I personally don't like this word, but, you know, the idea of like teaching, if it was kind of weird using that word, but like for me that like it is and you know, has been some of the most fulfilling stuff I've done in my career that I would have never, ever imagined, mm. you know, in my time at Sweat. I would have never, ever thought for one minute, oh, like I'd love to actually help other people do that. Yeah. It would have never occurred to me. That's kind of beautiful, though. And mm. I, I do feel like a lot of the time we find purpose in the pain. Oh, absolutely. And I yeah. love that you've turned it into that. Rachel mentioned to me, actually, that we were talking about what do we like outside of our jobs? <laughs> like, that is such yeah. a common issue, I think, for entrepreneurs. Yeah, huge. And she said you've yeah. actually helped her a ton focus yeah. on her personal life as yeah. well as her yeah. career. How do you approach balancing the two? Yeah. So for me and for a lot of people who are first-time founders that have engaged in you, you have this fear that if you kind of don't like touch and control and be across everything that the whole thing will blow up, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an elaborated story, but, you know, uh, an example, a friend of mine, you know, he's in his mid-40s, he's got three children, three daughters, and I was talking to him, you know, once about kids and he's like, oh, yeah, you have the first one and you wrap them in cotton wool and you gently place them you know, in the cot and then 
five or ten times a night, you come in just to like listen to them or poke them to see if they're still alive because you're not sure if they're dead, right? Because you have massive paranoia that like something's going to go wrong, right? You've left the hospital and you're like, what the hell is this little nugget, right? <laughs> you know? Anyway, that obviously that all works out. And then you have the second kidney, like, oh, you're just kind of a bit sloppy. Oh, you throw them in there, chuck a blanket over it. You know, they'll be all right, 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 whatever. And he's like, tell me the third kid. He's like, kick them down the hallway. They'll be fine. <laughs> and, like, the same principle is kind of applying business, but it's really hard to get that perspective early on, right? And so to your initial point, it's like how do you kind of disassociate, like, you know, the business and personal life and, and whatever. You know, part of this is understanding. So, like, one, there is no disassociation. Like, your identity is in some regard tied up with the business. But like two, understanding from an emotional standpoint, like if you're not on top of everything and you don't know everything and it's not all working and it's perfect, this, that and the other, the baby will still live. It'll still survive. You know, like and that's a, a very important mentality, I think, for your founders early in their journey to have. It's like not everything has to be perfect. And it's part of that like emotional tension that makes it really hard for people to switch off. Mm -hmm. So they might work a 40, 50, 60 hour week, but mentally they're working 120 hours. Yeah, because they're freaking out about it all the time. And, you know, and this is like what Rachel and I would talk about all the time. She's like, oh, she's like, you just are never worried. She's like, you are just never stressed about anything. I mean, you just sent me five years ago. Yeah, well, I was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a position where you don't need to be worried No, I, can, I have a very, very different perspective on it now. And again, like that's, I'm very grateful and fortunate, of course, like to have that perspective. Yes, part of that is having some money, but a huge part of that is actually learning. Mm. Yeah, it's actually having the knowledge and the perspective to be like, oh, okay, well, Oh, if your business dies, cool. You did it once, you do it again. Did like, that financial success change your view on success and happiness at all? Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, and just as a fun aside, right? So like for, if you're a first-time founder who didn't come from wealth or you have a reason that money is very important to you and you want to build it, you spend your first half of many years trying to get it. You're like, got to get money, got to get money, got to get it, got to get it. And then you get it. Maybe you sell a company or you have a really big year of profit or whatever, and you go, cool, and you go, well, fuck, I don't want to lose it now. Yeah, and then that becomes a really big problem, right? And the fear of not losing it is in some regards almost worse than the fear of trying to get it because you didn't have it, so you had nothing to lose. But when you have it, then you're like, oh, shit, I don't want to lose it. So it's a very different you know, kind of mindset, right, like to, to go through. And like that in itself is a really interesting you know, journey to try and navigate. Like part of the learning that even having money doesn't change your but won't necessarily change your perspective or the fear with it. Mm -hmm. That's a journey. Like you have to go through that journey, you know, to try to disassociate from the safety that it provides you. But I think even some of the earlier remarks, people will see success as money. Yes, they'll see success as a CEO job title or an entrepreneur job title or a big office or lots of employees or winning a business award or whatever, right? You know, it's like, but like, and this is so cliche, but like if all that shit makes you really miserable, like are you really winning? Yeah, like because like, I have lots of friends. You have a few friends who are you know billionaires and they've got planes and yachts and you know, this and that and the other and whatever. It's like, well, we we've spoken about this many times. I'm like, are you any happier since having those things? And they're like, no. They're like, sure, I have like it's more convenient. Yeah, like maybe my holidays are slightly that they were here and now they're here. But it's like, but the importance of happiness doesn't come from those things. And I know some people would certainly argue that, and we're all entitled to our beliefs. But like, having more money doesn't really make you any happier. Yeah, like. And I guess your level of normal is just different. Yeah, like, absolutely. You yeah. just adjust to the new normal. Yep, yep, absolutely. In in my position, yeah, I so I bought a new house shortly after you know doing the deal, and a few friends of mine were like, they're like, oh man, you're a new house, you've massively upgraded, and you're all right. I'm like, I didn't buy that with the deal money. You bought it before. Yeah, and they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, 
I haven't spent any of the deal money. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, <laughs> what, what would be the point in that? Have you bought anything crazy? No. Oh, my gosh. Not, not a single thing. Well, the mo- like literally the most crazy thing like, is, a, is a nice holiday. But Which I like, think is amazing because yeah. it's such a good experience and memory. Yeah, yeah. But like, and, and this is like part of the point too, right? You know, like, yeah, I bought a, a slightly nicer, larger house. At the moment in that house, at least 50% of the rooms have no furniture still. Are you just a minimalist? I just, it just it's, that, that stuff's just not that important to me. Yeah. Like, and, and it's it's really strange, so like, you know, going the other way around, right? Like, you know, when I was very early in the journey, it's like I had made about three or $400,000 a year as a personal trainer and I bought myself a watch, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know anything about watches. I like I, I literally straight up bought that watch because I thought that that's what you did when you made money. It was a $15,000 Breitling, right? I still have it. I never wear it, <laughs> like literally ever. It's cool to keep that though. Yeah, like... And of course, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy like a set of like Louis Vuitton suitcases. Right. Because that's what you do. Because this is what you do, right? <laughs> anyway, when I got them and I shortly after that discovered, I'm like, yeah, they're nice looking and they're nice leather, but they're really bloody hard to use. You know, I was like, I have like a $300 Samsonite one and I use that and I've got a um, July, you know, suitcase as well. They're great. I don't have to worry about damaging them. And like you can probably see I'm quite practical more than I am. Style is not my thing. I'm not like cool. You look great. Yeah, this is Rachel. I was going to say, does Rachel help? Do you like, do you, these are like cargo pants, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even really know what they were (laughs) until we met. That's so funny. And like the funniest part, so like like the very first time that Rachel and I met like in person, right? So I pulled up at the airport because she flew to where I live and um, for us to catch up. And she comes out, and I always tell the story, she comes walking out of the airport, she's in this like one piece like bodysuit thing. And she's like, she looked so beautiful, Right. And She's I'm, gorgeous. Yeah, amazing. She's stunning. And and I'm wearing like, no, there's no exaggeration. I'm wearing a five-year-old set of like Adidas black, like cotton track pants that are like faded. <laughs> and I'm wearing like a long sleeve, like gym top, like a Nike gym top that has like holes in the armpits. Yeah. That's when you right. know, because you don't have to flex with the outfit. Well, I don't guess so. But like, then the thing was, and so that she didn't say anything to me for a few months. And then a couple of months later, she buys me a t-shirt. Right. Anyway, it's like extra large. Right. And I put it on. I was like, oh, this is like, this is really loose. And she's like, yeah, you have been wearing quite tight fitting T-shirts. And I was like, are they out? really, are they? And then she's like, put your T-shirt on. And I'm like, okay. And she said, put your hands above your head and you can like, you would like come up. No. And she's like, she's like, that's how, this is just not right. Yeah. And it's yeah. the loose style is in. Yeah. I'm so that was to... all new for me. Yeah. That was all very new for me. Yeah. Yeah. Very it's new. a good match. Yeah, yeah, she's madly increased my style game. She's awesome. Yeah, I'm seeing her tomorrow. I can't wait. Another tweet. Mm -hmm. You said, time doesn't speak to the quality of relationship and instead you should look to characteristics like values, alignment, Mm -hmm. reciprocity, Mm -hmm. intimacy and utility. Yeah. So how do you feel about relationships and have you gotten to focus on them more now that you're out of sweat? Yeah, part of of the point um, I'm getting at there is that a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, like, this person's my best friend. We've been best friend for 10 years, 15 years, you know, whatever. Like, I'd do anything for them, right? And, like, and whilst I understand that's, like, a very nice note and a very nice sentiment or whatever, what, what that is doing is effectively creating, like, unconditionality, right? So it's like, well, I unconditionally love you and, and I will unconditionally be your friend and unconditionally support you. But then you will also regularly hear, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that, that my friend did that to me. I've known you for 
15 years, like, how could you do this? I feel so betrayed, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's because you weren't being honest with yourself or that person. And what what this you know, really gets at is it's like knowing someone for a really long amount of time doesn't mean that you have a good relationship. Even if you would say that, oh, this person A and B have been best friends for a long time, it does not mean that you have a good relationship, mm. right? Like, you know, a good relationship would normally be represented by, you know, having similar like, you know, values and beliefs, you know, because then you can actually get along. You know, it would normally have some form of utility or like value. So you would have a value exchange of some sort and that value exchange would be reciprocated, right? And like, and this is a, in some regards, like quite a mechanical way of looking at relationships. It's like, but you don't have a relationship with anybody in your life that you get nothing from. Mm. And so if that's true, right, then you have relationships to get things. And if you are in a relationship with somebody of any sort for a really long time, but you're not actually getting things or the things that you want, well, then why the hell are you in the relationship, whether it's friendship or intimate or otherwise? Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a very irrational you know, worldview. And I would go so far as to say like a lot of relationship discomfort or you know, sadness actually comes from the inability to let go of relationships when you probably should. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of the world would go, oh, well, like letting go of a relationship or your best friend or whatever, like, that's bad. You're a bad person. That's mean. It's like, what? It doesn't need to be a negative thing. It's like you finish school and leave. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like you finish a meal and leave a restaurant. That's not bad. And I know that that's, they're, they're different. But like in the same regard, it's like you can finish a relationship with somebody. It doesn't mean that you have to hate them. Yeah, Or you could change your relationship with someone to not be a best friend but just be a friend. Yeah, they're not bad things. That's the natural course of life, right? Yeah, we talk a lot about evolving and changing on this show because mm. I think with the internet now, uh, it's really difficult to change your mind <laughs> and uh, yeah. and to evolve. And I, I really agree with you. I think if we're evolving as people, we're obviously evolving out of certain relationships. Yeah, that's just practical. And you know, even to some of your remarks before about the um, the founder journey and you know, it's unrelatable and this and that and the other and whatever, it's like, well, certain decisions that you make, you know, your intimate partner, your career choice, you know, and like personal hobbies, those three choices alone um, are immediately going to rule out a huge portion of both your existing and potential future relationships. Mm-hmm. Purely like just based on those three decisions. Yeah. Right. And in some regards, that's probabilistic in nature, right? It's like, okay, well, the probability that you found a company that's successful and you run it and you work really hard, but then you can still really get along with people that have no drive in their life at all and have no interest in working, no interest in a career at all, but you knew them for 10 years. So you should keep being best mates and hang out every Tuesday. Like that's just, that's improbable, mm-hmm. right? It's unlikely. 100%. Greg and I talk about this oh. all the time because yeah. it, it feels quite, like I think we feel guilty sometimes. Oh, absolutely. The self-criticism and like self-judgment is really harsh because in a you know a really blunt way of saying this would be in the in that example of like the founder or the entrepreneur it's like you are the abnormal one yes yes like it is it is less normal to do that than not and a lot of the world will perceive it in that simplistic way they'll say but that's not normal you're not normal mm-hmm. and then so then normally as human beings we will say well like yeah actually I am not normal and actually I am getting rid of a lot of my old friends actually and we really don't get along anymore and I actually. I don't have as many good friends. I'm a little bit isolated, actually. And then you start to tell yourself this story. And that it's a very, it would be a very easy thing to then say, oh, I am bad, I am wrong, rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. It's like, but if you remove the emotion out of it, it's like, well, but that's normal. It's yeah. a normal part of life. And it's 
so valuable to me when I do meet someone who can yeah. relate, whether it's you yep. or Rachel or people who do get it. Yep. It creates such a special bond right away because yeah. it's just someone you can bounce ideas off and talk to. It reminds me of, uh, I think it's Step Brothers, where they're like, we just become best friends. <laughs> I think we just became best friends. Yeah. Yes. Like, it literally is like that. But I, honestly, I feel that's a little bit like adulthood as well in general. Right? Like you meet, the later in life you meet people, I think you opt in or out quicker. Yeah. Your of relationships in general. And you normally opt in or out a little bit harder. Like you'll get deeper into your friendships and relationships quicker than you will when you're younger. Because you know yourself better. Yeah, I think I think you become more honest with yourself, yeah, and more honest with others, yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's a waste of time. Yeah, oh, yeah, the energy and time thing, right? If yeah. I meet up with someone and I'm like, I know I'm not gonna vibe with you. Yeah. I'm for sure not gonna get coffee with you again. No, 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 no. It's and but and that's another like guilt inducing scenario, I know. right? Especially if the other person's like, oh, I really want to catch up and you're like, I don't want to. Even if someone's super passionate and works hard on something that's completely different to me, mm. I can still get down with that. Yeah, because you can relate. Yeah. Like yeah. I met someone the other day who is a competitive road biker. Yeah, cool. And I was like, he was like, I'm so sorry, this is so boring. And I was like, no, 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 you're no, passionate about it. it therefore, yeah, I, I care. Yeah. Love that. You're a dad now. Yes. What has parenthood changed for you in terms of relationships? Uh, a lot. Yeah, a lot for sure. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the headline is that uh, firstly, parenthood is not at all what I ever thought it was going to be. Because like to context, like, I don't think I'd ever really even held a child before having one. Wow. Yeah, like I just hadn't really been around them that much, you know, growing up. But um, I think it de- like it, it's this massive patience thing, right? It's a massive patience game. And, uh, you know, someone once said to me as well, they're like, you know, parenting is really, really, really hard only for people that want to be good at it, mm. right? So it's like the better that you want to be at parenting, the harder it feels, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a very, it's very easy to be like harsh on yourself, you in that process. And like, you know, kids are going to be kids, they're going to break stuff, spill stuff be annoying and irritating like a lot of the time you know for certain parts of it and it goes through kind of waves obviously i can only speak to being four and a half years in i can't talk to anything after that yet <laughs> i'm sure there'll be more 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 learnings to come but yeah i think it's been a really big like patience thing for me and i think also as well like it's a very different experience of like love i mm. think in, in a really unique way i mean honestly like it's, it's been one of the best things that, that's happened in my life for sure and i'm sure something to keep you busy as well yeah yeah absolutely that's i mean that that's probably a thing too like uh, this is an, this is an interesting perspective i think so yeah when, when you have a child you effectively have so before that you've got like all of your own autonomy and freedom and flexibility maybe you have like a partner or a family or a hobby or whatever that has some dependency on you but really it's still all your choice right as soon as you have a child that kind of goes so you you kind of go down a rung on the list of priorities and so that's a really like confronting challenge, you know, to go through, which I don't think much can prepare you for. It's a very big kind of change to your entire worldview. But part of what that presents is this really interesting, you know, fork in the road for a lot of people. And so one thing that's always really, you know, kind of irked me a little bit about certain people is I'll say like, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this for my kid. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's like you get to do that. Mm-hmm. Like this is an opportunity for you. Like it's not like you don't have to go – you know, take your kid to the sport game or have to take them. Like that, that's actually an opportunity for you to spend time with them. It can be fun for you, you know, this, that and the other. That's actually the good part, mm-hmm. you know. And I just feel like sometimes people, I mean, in parenthood, and it relates into lots of other things, business included, but people wish away like a lot of that time. 
Mm. You know, they're like, oh, like, oh, I really don't want to do this. Oh, I've got to go to this fucking business event or I'm going to you know, pick up my kid here or whatever. It's like, dude, like that's the good stuff. Yeah. Because you know, like, there will be a time, you know, and whether it's in business or parenthood, right, there'll be a time where you look back and go like, God, I wish I could do that again. You know, like, and I think about this even now, like sometimes in my career, I'm like, oh, man, like everything was so fun when it was all new. Yeah, you know, when everything is like new for the first time, it's like, oh, hit this goal for the first time, learn this thing for the new time. You know, right? that, that's all like so much fun, yeah. right? And then at some point in time, that's gone. I mean, like the parenting thing, I don't actually know if this is true because I haven't looked into it, but I did see in a couple of different places online this notion that like by the time your child is like 18, you've spent like 80% of your time with them. Wow. Because they move out of home and then it's a call or this or that and the other or maybe they travel or whatever it is, but they're not like actually living with you. You don't see them morning and night every day, right? And you kind of go, okay, cool. But then when you realize you have a kid and time goes so quickly, you're like, shit, it's running away. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm very excited to have kids and I'm just yeah. absorbing all the information right now. <laughs> Where are you at career-wise now? What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a couple of things kind of all at the same time. I'm so sort of like the founder, mentoring and advisory. I do that for about 15 companies at the moment, which I love. Like that's that's really enjoyable. I do a fair bit of investing alongside that, uh, not normally with those businesses. I try to keep that separate, but a lot of like investing. Uh, and then I've also, so I founded another company about, I don't know, it was maybe four or five years ago now, uh, that I like was not running at the time because I was doing sweat, but I founded it and we had like a, the other founders were management, like they were running the company. But a couple of months ago, I took over the CEO role in that business. So now I'm kind of, yeah, running Amazing. as well. Yeah. Back in the seat. Yeah, 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 back <laughs> in the seat, yeah. It's a lot less stressful <laughs> this time, but yeah, back in the seat. What's some advice you'd give to the listeners uh, that you wish you knew before yeah. you started? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I said before is that I think that not everything's going to break. You know, your business isn't as fragile as you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really big one. And I think like with a lot of these sorts of things, like intellectualizing that or, you know, like, intellectually understanding it is one thing. So you can kind of go, oh, okay, taking a day off won't kill the business or going on a holiday and not checking my emails won't kill the business or whatever. But like being able to get to a point where you live that is like it's very freeing and it'll make you a 10 times better business person. Mm. Like because it allows you a degree of like disassociation and disconnection from from the business, yeah. Love that. That's very helpful for me as well. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now it's time for the question we ask every guest. Mm-hmm. I started this podcast because I believe everyone's pursuit of wellness looks different. Yep. What does wellness mean to you? Yeah, I think uh, the idea of wellness for me would probably be working towards or finding a way to like live my best life. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, like not in a generic sense, you know, like I would suggest for me that's a combination of finding a way to love myself, finding someone to love. Yeah, and finding something to pursue that I love. Like, and that might be multiple things, right? Yeah, but, you know, I think for me, like, I don't think that you can kind of like be well if you don't have, you know, those things in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Where can they go see your amazing quotes? Yeah, hit me up on Instagram. Yeah, Toby underscore Pierce. Thank you so much, Toby. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Go comment on my last Instagram at Mari Llewellyn with the guest you want to see next. I'll be picking one person from the comments to send our bloom greens to. Make sure you hit follow so you never miss my weekly episodes. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to share and leave a review. See you next week.
please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.